It is true that the eight renewal principles that we push um, here at Southland will, be, will bring renewal to people's individual lives and to the life of a church. However, it is possible to implement renewal principles, the eight, and yet find that renewal is not taking root to the extent it should. Why is that? Uh, I was praying about that, and I believe the Lord showed me something this, uh, this week. And uh, I believe that there are false doc doctrines called doctrines of demons, by the way, by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that, uh, that are rooted in the devil's attempts to deceive us in order to cause people to abandon their faith, to plunge them into ruin and destruction, to divert them from mission, to cause division, and to lower the, sp uh, the temperature of spiritual fervency, in other words, lukewarmness, what we would call lukewarmness. There are eight false doctrines that many believers and churches are affected by today. And uh, you see them coming up on the screen there. There's the exaggerated view of, of grace, or cheap grace, which keeps people from, from getting serious about, uh, about their sin issues because grace just covers it all anyway. There's uh, the anti-law movement, not under the law anymore, so we don't have to listen to the law. I can uh, commit sexual adultery. It really all doesn't matter anymore. Grace covers it all, and the law is gone. Then there's the prosperity gospel that God wants me to be healthy and wealthy. There's a rejection of biblical authority so that some things change with the times. And so even though the Bible says this, we, the times have changed. Our culture has come up with new morals. And so we, uh, we neglect the scriptures. We walk away from the scriptures and we, or we reinterpret them and, uh, and we reject biblical authority on these issues. There's the rejection of the perseverance of the saints, or the once saved, always saved. So I said a little prayer, and now it doesn't matter if I live like hell. And I don't mean that lightly when I said that. And we see it, and churches are permeated, permeated across this country with, the, with people who say they are believers and don't live holy lives. Don't live anything like what Jesus would want us to live because of these doctrines. Then there's the deification of man or the human potential movement and, uh, and its emphasis on man and its de-emphasis on God. It starts, everything starts with man. And then there's universalism. Everyone goes to heaven in the end anyway, so what difference does it make? And finally, there's the rejection of the doctrine of hell, and it's not just in liberal circles, but it's, it's moved right into evangelical circles now. And, uh, and in, the, in the rejection of hell, it, it, it's, it isn't compatible. Hell isn't compatible with our modern-day sensibilities. And so we've removed it. And the result of uh, imbibing in these uh, false doctrines has created uh, tremendous trouble and problems in the church today. And so the church has become lukewarm, and, and uh, she, is not the, she is not the effective instrument that God called. You know, uh, we often talk about churches who have a mission, but the truth of the matter is the scriptures tell us that God has a mission, and he created the church to, to carry out that mission. But the church isn't effective. Because, of, uh, because she is accepted and being affected by some of these false doctrines. Our preaching here at Southland against most of these has enhanced renewal in our church, not just uh, implementing the eight renewal principles, but preaching against the false doctrines has enhanced uh, some of the renewal in our church. And uh, however, there's two or three here we haven't said much about, but that's about to change. Today we're going to focus on the last one, the reality of hell. Jesus believed in the existence of an eternal hell. People argue that the doctrine of hell is incompatible with the God of love. While the Bible says that God is love, it does not say that God is only love. It also says that God is righteous and he's holy and he's angry at, at man's sin. Love is probably the most attractive aspect of God's nature, no doubt. 
But we cannot understand it if we divorce it from the other aspects of who God is and his nature. We must, behold, uh, we must hold to both the kindness and severity of God. Paul said in Romans, he said in chapter 11, 22, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. There's, actually, there's a, there's a once saved, uh, always saved kind of verse against the, that doctrine right in that passage. God's kindness of severity or wrath were best demonstrated in the death of Jesus. At the cross, God showed that his love cannot act in contradiction to his righteous wrath against us. Jesus, the Lord of love and the author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in more vivid and blood-curdling ways than all other biblical authors put together. Thirty-one times. Thirty-one different passages, not counting the parallel passes, uh, gospel passages. He also spoke uh, about hell more than he did about heaven. It must have been a crucial truth and reality to Jesus. He warned Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Was it unloving of Jesus to warn others of hell? No, it wasn't unloving at all. If you, if you were giving directions to get to Vancouver and there was one road that led directly to Vancouver and another one through the Rockies ended up with a sharp cliff, you would not only, you would not only tell them the right road to take, you'd tell them there's a fork in the road there at Kamloops and you better not turn down that one because otherwise you're going off the cliff. Wouldn't you do that? That would be the sensible and loving thing to do. Well, Jesus warned exactly about such roads. In Matthew 7, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. He used the reality of hell to motivate unbelievers to repent and be saved. And he also used the reality of hell to motivate believers to live holy lives. When we lose the doctrine of the, and, and an understanding of the reality of hell, when we lose that, we get lax about holiness. Then suddenly it doesn't matter if we, uh, you know, get into sexual sin and commit adultery and all these things. It doesn't matter if we lie a little here and cheat a little there and don't serve God wholeheartedly here. It all doesn't matter. There's no hell anyway. Mark chapter 9, Jesus said, if your hand, and this is how Jesus used hell. He said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Jesus was very serious about this. But scripture offers us a rationale for the existence of hell. First of all, justice demands a hell. As Abram declared in Genesis 18, will not the judge of the earth do right? Not all justice is accomplished in this life, is it? For example, many wicked prosper. Isn't that true? Psalm 73, for example, says, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Thus the existence of a place of punishment for the wicked after this life is necessary to maintain the justice of God. <clears throat> Surely, there would be no real justice were there no place of punishment for the demented souls of a Stalin or a Hitler. Isn't that true? So somebody objects, why doesn't God reform rather than just punish sinners? Well, the truth is, God does try to reform people, and the time of reformation is called now, this life. In 2 Peter chapter 3, um, Peter said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
However, after the time of Reformation comes the time of reckoning. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Hell is only for the unreformable and unrepentant, the reprobate. If they were reformable, they would still be alive. For God in his wisdom and goodness wouldn't allow anyone to go to hell whom he knew would go to heaven if he gave them more opportunity. <clears throat> Somebody objects, secondly, isn't hell simply annihilation? And that is becoming a very popular position in, in churches today. No, Jesus clearly affirmed that there is conscious suffering in hell. He said in Matthew 8, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Annihilated persons would not be conscious of any suffering. Further, Jesus said that like the righteous are granted eternal life, so too the unrighteous are condemned to eternal punishment. In Matthew, Jesus again speaking about hell said, <clears throat> excuse me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. As long as there is an eternal life, there's going to be an eternal punishment. It's not annihilation. Jesus also spoke of degrees of punishment, but there can be no degrees of non-existence, can there? Further, annihilation could not really be punishment since there would be no consciousness of pain, of punishment. And if there was no punishment of believers at all, even people like Hitler and Stalin would have nothing coming to them and there would be no ultimate justice in the universe. They'd be off the hook. And people would have no disincentive to be as wicked as they wish. No, the scriptures tell us that justice demands that there be a hell. Secondly, there's great rationale here and understanding for why. Because this is unpopular in our culture today. And so we as believers need to understand that. Not only does justice demand it, love demands that there be a hell. The Bible asserts that God is love, but love cannot act coercively only persuasively. A God of love cannot force people to love him. Forced or coerced love, as I've often said, is not love at all. If I, you know, when my kids were young or my grandchildren today, if I demand that they come and give me a hug or hug my legs, uh, then it isn't love at all, is it? That's just a hug. That isn't love. God can only woo us, and that he is doing. In Romans chapter 2, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Hence, those who choose not to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not wish to be with him must be allowed to be separated from him. Hell allows separation from God. So we see justice demands hell, as we look at the rationale for it. Love demands hell, and so does human dignity. Since God cannot force people to be with him in heaven against their free will, human free choice demands that there be a place away from God, hell. Jesus cried out, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those, who, who, those sent to you. How often I would have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He woos us by common grace, by, with, with blessing and goodness on this earth. He tries to draw us to himself, but he will not command or demand or force us against our own will. He will not do it. The desire of the sinful human heart is for independence. We want to choose and go our own way. This is no idol wandering from the path. Jeremiah said, no one repents of his wickedness saying, what have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. We're determined 
to be independent. That We are born with this willful, independent spirit and heart. We're rebellious by nature. We want to get away from God. Hell, then, is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, to go our own way, to be the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to get away from him and his control. C.S. Lewis said this. Now listen very carefully. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. J.I. Packer said, hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. This is important for so many people think that hell is unfair, but it isn't. God gives us what we desire in the end. Somebody objects, but wouldn't temporal punishment lead people to repentance? Like if you just, if you just punished them for a little while, wouldn't that do it? Wouldn't that take care of it? Jonathan Edwards said this, in response, he said, how can a place devoid of God's restraining grace, hell, so it doesn't have any of God's grace, God is not present in hell, accomplish that which no efforts of his grace could accomplish on earth where his grace is everywhere, namely a change of heart. He's saying, how could, how could a place that has none of God's grace affect change in somebody in a place where his grace isn't when a place with his grace isn't changing them. Makes a lot of sense. Suffering has no tendency to soften a hard heart. It actually hardens it more, like sun, baking clay, or melting wax. It all depends on the, on the heart, on the nature of the recipient. The relapse in hardened criminality in modern prisons confirms Edwards' point. We see that in our prisons today. They don't reform prisoners. In many cases, they're more hardened. We also see this point in Scripture. In the last days, John, uh, in Revelation, tells and describes for us the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bold judgments poured out on the earth. It's a, these descriptions of horror the world has never seen before, and when you read them carefully, it's just horrific. You'd think that that would bring about repentance, but let's see what the scriptures say. In Revelation chapter 16, beginning in, in verse 8, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts, as found in, in chapter 9. Several places it says they would not repent in the face of, of judgment. This is, this is a mind-boggling and informative thought. They knew full well who was judging them and for what he was judging them, and they still refused to repent. Temporal judgment for a short period of time will not reform hardened people. Willful eternal sinning then justifies eternal judgment. They keep being punished because they keep on sinning. Fourth, not only does justice demand a hell, not only does love demand a hell, not only does human dignity demand that there be a hell, but the integrity of heaven demands that there be a hell. Evil is contagious and needs to be quarantined. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? If God did not eventually separate the tares from the wheat, the tares or the weeds, would choke out the wheat. The only way to preserve an eternal place of good is to eternally separate 
all evil from it. And we already talked about annihilation, so that's not an option. So the only option left is to have eternal separation. The, uh, the only way to have an eternal heaven is to have an eternal hell. It wouldn't be an eternal heaven if wickedness was allowed in it, would it? The wheat and tares cannot grow together forever. There must be an ultimate separation or else good will not triumph over evil. As in society, punishment for evil is necessary that good might prevail. Even so, in eternity, good must triumph over evil. Now, somebody objects. Is it fair to condemn those who have never heard? Yes, it is. And here's the reason why. Through general revelation, they know about his eternal power and Godhead. No pagan anywhere or is without clear light from God's general revelation so that he is without excuse. Paul wrote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, for example, and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For example, if I say to a boy or girl of eight years old, did someone make my watch, or did it just happen and end up on my wrist? They'll get it right every single time. But willful mankind does all he can to twist what is obvious into something that is a lie because he refuses to bend his knee or her knee to God. That's what it is about. Mankind actually is aware that he made heaven, the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Often I look at the sky from our western view that we have at home, and I just, uh, I'll just praise the Lord as I look at it. Say, God... And then, oh, last night, in fact, as it, it was just, it was stunning. And then I saw a painting on our wall. Well, it's, it's a print of a painting, okay? And uh, the two didn't look at all alike. One was obviously made by man. The other one was stunning, a handiwork made by God. Such a difference. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor uh, are there words whose voices uh, were they're not uh, heard. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Wow. Further, the knowledge of God is stamped on their conscience. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Even people that don't go to church know, what the, know the law. Shouldn't, shouldn't cheat, shouldn't steal, shouldn't commit adultery. They're trying to overturn that, but they know it instinctively. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them when they're doing right. C.S. Lewis, uh, he's a master in this particular, on this particular point. He said, when you hear people quarreling, they say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did that to you? Or, that's my seat, I was there first. Or, leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. And then he says, what's interesting about that is that the person saying these things is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the interesting thing is the other man seldom replies to heck with your standard. He's always looking for an excuse why he broke the standard, why he's the exception demonstrating that God's law is stamped on their very conscience. Wow. Lewis says it looks very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play. Where did that come from? 
from God, even though God has revealed himself to mankind through creation and conscience, fallen humanity has rejected that light. Hence, God is not obligated to give them any more light since they have turned away from the light they have. In fact, they have suppressed it. In Romans chapter 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For example, if someone is lost in the darkness in a, in a dense, dense uh, forest at night, you know, and he sees, a, he sees a little bit of a glimmer of light through the trees out there, what will he instinctively do? You're lost in a dark forest trying to get out and you see a, a pin of light, a little bit of glimmer of light. What are you going to do? You're going to go to that light. Now, if that same person who's lost then turns around and goes the other way, whose fault is it that he's, that he's still lost? That is precisely what has happened with us and with God. John 3 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They turned around from that light and went back into the darkness. God is just in what he does. If anyone truly seeks God through general revelation, God will provide the revelation for salvation. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's a story of this in, uh, uh, in, in the book of Acts in chapter 10. And, and uh, it's the story of Cornelius, and, and uh, he was a, a Roman centurion. And um, he, it says that he prayed daily and he gave alms to the poor. He was seeking after God. He didn't know the way. And one day an angel showed up and said to him, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and he has seen your good deeds. Now send two men to Joppa, which is Tel Aviv, and, uh, and go to Simon the Tanner's house. It's by the sea. I mean, he gave him the address. He said, there is a man who's staying there right now. His name is Simon Peter. Uh, go fetch him. So the, he sent two servants, and they got there the next day. At noon, now in Simon Tanner's house, you have Simon Peter. He's praying at noon, and as he's praying, suddenly he sees a vision. And it's of a, of, a, of a tablecloth coming down, and it's got a lot of unclean animals on it, you know, ceremonially unclean animals. And a voice says to him, get up and eat, Peter. And Peter says, no, 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 I'm a good Jew. I don't eat unclean animals. And three times the voice says, get up and eat, and then suddenly the, the vision stops, ends. And as it ends, there's a knock at the door. And you see that God is arranging the intersection of two parties. And the two servants sent from Caesarea, they have arrived at Simon, Tanner, uh, Simon the Tanner's home, and they knock at the door and they ask for a man, Peter Simon. I mean, they ask by name. They've never, never met him before. So it's a, this is incredible when you think of it, isn't it? And so then the Holy Spirit, it says, speaks to Peter and says, go with him. Go, go with him uh, back to Caesarea. Peter goes with him, and when he gets there, um, Cornelius has gathered all his friends and relatives and people that he knows, uh, and uh, the place is packed, and he says, share whatever is on your heart. And Peter begins to uh, share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ and that Jesus has died on the cross. Uh, you know, God has loved, uh, loved them so much that even though they were wayward and in their sins, and, uh, but Jesus, because God loves, uh, loves them so much, Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, and, and he was buried, and he rose again, proving that he was God. And, uh, and now they can have their sins forgiven, and they can have a right relationship with God. And they can know that they're on their way to heaven instead of hell. And as he's sharing this good news, and that is good news, isn't it? 
Oh, it's amazing news. As he's sharing this good news, these people are listening intently and they're opening up their hearts even as he's speaking. And, uh, and, and they were saved and after that the Holy Spirit fell on them. Well, that's, this story is not isolated. When we respond to general, when people respond to the little bit of light in a dense, dark world, then God, as they move toward that light and they seek God with their hearts, then God makes himself known to them. Uh, Jeremiah said, you will seek me and you will know me when you seek me with all your, what? Heart. And God responds, and it's happening today in droves. I've got two books uh, on my shelves. One is Miraculous Movements, and the other is Dreams and Visions. One is by a, a Tim Doyle, and the other one is by a Jerry Trousdale. And it's full of stories of people in Mideast countries uh, where the church isn't, uh, or isn't very prominent, and where they're being visited at night, people who who are seeking truth, who are being visited at night and having visions of Jesus, and then he, he intersects them with somebody else who has the gospel and gives them the special revelation, and they're saved and changed and transformed. Is that amazing? Is that amazing? Yeah, it's very amazing. Do you want me to tell you one? Okay. This is a modern-day story of Sheikh Hanif. Hanif was a studied and seasoned Muslim leader with a reputation for being a decent man. But what no one else knew was that there was a void in his soul that Islam had never really satisfied. He longed for certainty regarding his status with God, and he struggled to find answers for the violence inside his Islamic world. He grieved at the lack of compassion for suffering people, and that his religion didn't allow people to make choices for themselves. And it troubled him a lot. However, one night, he had a dream unlike the terrifying nightmares that sometimes haunted him. This night, he awakened in the dark hours with a new hope burning inside. Perhaps he would receive the answers to his questions. In his dream, Hanif encountered someone handsome and graceful who addressed him by name, saying he wanted him to serve him. Shaken, Hanif asked the man, Who are you? I am Isa al-Masih, Quranic for, uh, term for Jesus the Messiah. And if you obey me, you will succeed in what you have longed for in your life. Then Jesus showed him a tree in this vision, standing along atop a hill, a very busy road running beneath its branches. And Hanif recognized the place, for it was not far from him. Then Jesus showed him the face of a man and said, Go now and wait under the tree by the road. Look for this man, for he is my servant. He will show you the true answers to all your questions about God. Hanif awoke, and at dawn he posted himself at the place on the road that would soon fill with carts and livestock and, uh, and thousands of people with their, with their loads. In the late afternoon, several miles away, it had already been a full day, and it would be another hour of walking to get to the secluded place selected for this week's all-night prayer meeting. We're talking about another man now. Curiously, he had recently had a strange dream, too, in which God had said to him, I will give you a sheik. Meanwhile, Sheikh Hanif, still at his appointed place, was beginning to despair. He had not imagined that his dream-imparted task would take more than 12 hours of scanning innumerable faces. Then in the near darkness, there came a few more people on the now almost empty road. He could barely discern three figures as the distance closed between them. And then, the one in the middle. Yes, that's the face. That was the face he had been waiting for. That night, Wafi answered the life and death questions that Sheikh Hanif had. And then they went to Hanif's home and told his startled wife. And within the next couple of days, both experienced and received Isa al-Masih, Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that amazing? He's still doing that. Anybody who seeks him will find him. That's a promise in the word. They may not have a special revelation. They may not understand anything about it. But if their hearts are turned to the general revelation he's gone, the little bit of light that there is, 
he immediately ensures that they will know the truth that will set them free. Jesus is infinitely more willing that people be saved than we are. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, he really is. Well, let's talk lastly about the nature of hell. And of course, on a topic such as this and getting to speak only one time, um, I wrestle, <laughs> you have no idea how much I wrestle with what not to say. There's so much on a topic like this. But let's talk for a few minutes about the nature of hell. It is not enough to describe hell as being separated from God as true as that is. It is that. Because there are many who would welcome simply being apart from God. That is precisely what many of them want. And so we must dig a little deeper. And the Bible describes the nature of hell as a horrifying reality. It doesn't tell us everything about a hell, but there's some things that we can gather from God's word about it. And it uh, describes it as a horrifying reality using forceful figures of speech such as darkness and a perpetual burning of fire and smoke and gnashing and weeping. And uh, hellfire is real but not necessarily physical as we would know it because people will have imperishable physical bodies so normal fire wouldn't affect them. Further, the figures of speech that describe hell are contradictory if taken in a physical sense. It has flames, yet it has, is outer darkness. I believe a lot of it's talking about the internal torment of what happens to people without God. But to say that scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever because the reality will be far worse than the symbol. It always is. A symbol only points to reality, and as horrific as the symbols appear, the reality must be always more than. They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. In the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is, depart from me. To simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why? Because we were created to walk with God. But sin excludes us from, the, from God's face. Isaiah 59.2 says, It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Imagine when the face of God turns away from a human being for eternity. All the life, the joy... The love, the strength, the meaning we have looked for and longed for is found in his face, that is, in his favor, his presence, his fellowship and pleasure. Psalm 16 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Everything, this is what believers don't, un, unrepentant unbelievers don't understand. Earth is the intersection of heaven and and hell. Earth is the closest that the repentant believer will ever come to hell, come to know hell, or experience hell. But for the unrepentant individual, earth is the closest that they will ever come to heaven and experience the goodness of, of heaven. There is on earth the goodness of God, there is an element, a lot of his grace, common grace that we talked about before, is found on earth. And so people can experience joy, they can experience love, they can experience friendship and fellowship and community, they can experience wisdom and goodness and kindness, they can experience all kinds of things. Is it not true? Is, is it true? It is true. In hell, and, and by the way, let's stop before we go to hell. The reason they experience that is because God is upholding that and he's giving that. That's his grace flowing into us. Don't you know that it is the goodness of God that draws you to repentance, the Bible says? And in, but hell is void of all that. 
And the individual who says, no God for me, doesn't recognize that some of what he's experienced, the love and all these things that I just mentioned, the reason he's experiencing or she is experiencing it is because they're on earth experience because God brings the rain and the sunshine and the sunrise. He brings it on everybody. He's not, <clears throat> he doesn't just give it to the believer on earth. Would you agree with that? So everybody experiences some of his grace over here. And it's intended to draw us to him. But in hell, in keeping with our wishes, God completely separates us from him. And all that is good that he has granted to us is gone. That is hell. Think about that. Take some time to ponder that. Anything that is good in your life is gone in hell. <clears throat> no goodness. No joy. Ever. Misery. Weeping and gnashing for eternity. Not just today. Next day. Next week. Next month. It never stops no matter how many pills you take. And many people are masking their misery today with drugs. And in hell, you can't mask it with anything. It's a horrid thing. It's a horrific thing. A soul destroyed in hell becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul is for. Reasoning, Romans chapter 121 says, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They can't even think straight. They lose the ability to feel, to choose, to give, to receive love or joy. Many people, uh, many atheists, they, they mock and they laugh and they say, I'm glad I'm going to hell with my friends. It's better than going to be with God if there is such a thing. And they mock it and they talk about it just before they die. They don't realize that there won't be fellowship with their friends in hell. There's no such a thing. When we lose God's supportive presence altogether, it will be hell. Everything about good about humanity will be stripped away at judgment. Everything that, like joy and love and wisdom and goodness and friendship that they knew and took for granted will be stripped away. Romans 1 gives a pretty avid description of what it could look like in hell, I think. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is the end result of those who wanted life without God they got exactly what they wished for. Life without God. Even in this world, it is clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable and blind. The more self-centered and self-absorbed and self-pitying and self-justifying the people are, the more breakdowns occur relationally and psychologically and even physically. <clears throat> for the believer, this is as close to hell as will come. Aren't you thankful for that today on this Thanksgiving weekend? See, this isn't a, a bad news message. Jesus didn't speak about hell because it was bad news. It is for those that go there. But the reason it's not bad is because God gives us a way out. No one has to go to hell that doesn't want to go to hell. That's amazing. That's good news. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He paid our hell. All the hells of humanity were, were, were placed on him. Everything, every sentence that was deserved by every human being was placed on him. And he suffered that in our place so that we don't have to go there. And if we will confess our sins, repent from our foolishness, our wickedness, our rebellion, and our sinfulness, 
and then bow our knee to him and receive him as Lord and submit and obey him above anything and anyone else, including ourselves, then scriptures tell us we can be saved. And we don't have to go to that place. Many years ago, I was 12 years old, and my father made me go, and I thank him for that, he made me go to a brunk crusade right across the street from us where the tennis courts are now. <clears throat> they put up a big tent. And I went with my brother, and, uh, and we sat somewhere in the back. And the preacher, George Brunk, he preached that night, and I came under tremendous conviction of sin and that I was lost and that I was on my way to hell. But I was so scared to go up front. I was a 12-year-old boy. I didn't sleep that night. And the next morning, I went back to that, it was a school ground at the time, and I walked around that tent much of the morning. And I pleaded with God, I said, please do not come back before tonight. I want to get saved tonight. I don't want to go to that place. I want to be with you. And uh, that evening, <clears throat> when it was time to go back to the crusade, um, walked into the tent and uh, my brother turned one way because we, we were going to sit in one the same spot and I turned the other way. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm sitting right on the front row. He said, why? And I said, never mind. <laughs> I wasn't going to walk all that way down. I would just have to take one step and I could receive Jesus. And I sat down right on the front row, and I waited for that preacher to stop. I just wanted him to stop already, because it was such a conviction in my heart. The Spirit was moving in my heart, and I wanted him so bad. I, don't, I wanted to escape from my life. And when the choir finally stood up, and everybody stood up to sing, he said, those of you that want to receive Jesus, step forward or come down the aisle. I took one step and I was forward. And a woman came and I think she asked if I had stepped forward. She wasn't sure if I was standing there or if I had stepped forward. <laughs> and I said, yes, I stepped forward. And they took me in the back and I received Jesus into my life. And it changed the trajectory of my life forever. I've never been the same. And you don't have to either. Maybe you're here today. You came for a Thanksgiving message. If you receive Jesus today, you'll have the greatest thing to be thankful for that you ever could be. This could be your greatest Thanksgiving ever. So we're going to bow for a word of prayer. You say, well, how do I get saved? How do I, how do I change from a path that's hell-bent to a path that's heaven-bent? You ask him and you receive it as a gift. And so that's what we're going to do. We're, I'm gonna just going to pray a prayer right now. I'm going to ask the church to, the whole congregation to follow me in this prayer, and you pray the prayer. If you mean it in your heart, God looks at the heart. He's not looking at your fancy words or anything like that. He just looks at your heart. And if that's the desire of your heart, then he will save you too. He'll forgive you of your sins and remove the guilt He'll change your, your trajectory for life. He'll give you new desires and a hope for heaven and meaning and purpose in life. That's a pretty good deal, wouldn't you agree? Jesus did it for you so that you wouldn't have to go to that awful place. This is what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. So let's bow for a word of prayer right now. And if you want Jesus in your heart, you just pray this prayer right now. Dear God, church, uh, follow me in this prayer. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. I was expecting a Thanksgiving message, but instead I received the best news I could have received. Something that I can really be thankful for. Oh God, I recognize that I'm on my way to hell because of my sinful rebellion. 
and my sinfulness. I, can, uh, I, re I, I repent of it. I turn from it, and I turn to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in my place, for paying my hell for me. I receive that as a gift and ask you to save me. I bow my knee to you, and I choose to obey you above anything and anyone else, including myself. Please save me and come into my life. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer and you meant that, then you just became a child of God and you changed your pathway, the trajectory of your life. If, you're a, if, you're a, if you call yourself a Christian here and you've been living a sinful, rebellious life, don't be so sure that that little prayer is going to be enough to keep you out of hell. That's that false doctrine of once saved, always saved. The scriptures tell us we can turn and go the other way. Don't believe the lie. It is a lie. Satan would like to trick you. Christians, we must live holy lives. Amen? Would you agree with that? Yeah. This week, read through the Gospel of Matthew and note Jesus' remarks about hell. Am I and ask yourself these questions. Am I walking with God? How does this impact the sin I'm holding on to? And what about my friends and relatives? What about them? And then, with joy in our hearts on the one side and the soberness of the shortness of time in the other, let's together go forward and advance kingdom for Jesus' sake. Amen? Amen.